Hello and welcome to our new podcast series, Life As It Is. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Each month, co-host Sharon Salzberg and I will speak with Buddhist practitioners about their work, practice, and everyday lives, and perhaps most importantly, how they're navigating these interesting times. In today's episode, Sharon and I sit down with Buddhist writer, cultural activist, and tricycle contributing editor, Daisy Hernandez. Daisy will talk about her new book, The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. Equal parts memoir and investigative journalism, The Kissing Bug tells the undertold story of a parasitic disease that disproportionately affects Latinx communities. Okay, so I'm here today with my co-host Sharon Salzberg and our guest Daisy Hernandez. So hi Sharon, hi Daisy. Hi. Hi James. So good to see you both again. Daisy, how are you doing? Are you finished with school and teaching? I am done with school and with teaching and uh, yes, just in my summer mode, virtual book tour. So we're here to talk about your new book. It's called The Kissing Bug. A True Story of a Family, an Insect, and a Nation's Neglect of a Deadly Disease. So first, what exactly are kissing bugs and what inspired you to write about them? So kissing bugs are technically triotomine insects. And the reason that I wrote about them and uh, that they're important is because they can carry a parasite that leads to this deadly disease called Chagas disease, or in English, it's been nicknamed the kissing bug disease. And it's a disease that my auntie was diagnosed with, which was the starting point for this book, trying to understand this illness that I basically had grown up with it because my auntie was diagnosed when I was pretty young. But I knew very little about it, and I thought it was a very rare disease for a long time, pretty much until her death when I was in my 30s. And so the book is a portrait of my relationship with her, which was very complicated, and then also trying to understand both the history of the disease and why it's been neglected for so many years. Yeah, so this is personal for you, and I'd just like to read very quickly something that sums up the work. This is from the Washington Post, a review in the Washington Post, and they describe your book this way. Lyrical, unflinching, and horrifying, Hernandez expertly skates the line between memoir and science writing, showing the personal effects of a disease perpetuated by a cascade of systemic failures. So your personal involvement with this results in this blend of personal narrative and journalism. Can you say something about that? It's very hard to do. (laughs) I had written a memoir before, and I worked as a journalist, as a daily journalist, and now more as a freelance journalist. And so I definitely know how to write in those two modes very separately from one another. But in this book, the big challenge was actually bringing them together. And it was a real turning point when I made the decision to really allow that personal voice to be the spine of the book, to really hold the book together so that whether I was talking about growing up with my auntie and our complicated mother-daughter relationship, or whether I was interviewing an epidemiologist or looking at the parasite in a lab for the first time, you still had the consistency of that voice. And when I was describing, yes, these insects and how they carry this parasite and transmit it actually through their fecal matter, not through their bites, I was really paying attention to make sure that my voice was there so that the reader could feel like they were hearing the story directly from me. And also that it was very much an act of translation in terms of the science and the medicine so that it would be accessible for readers. That was really, really important for me. 
Yeah, it's an amazing book. I mean, it's this amazing personal narrative, very moving. Your aunt eventually dies of Chagas disease. And there's no pretense of journalistic remove again. So the, putting the two together was quite a feat. The journalism is hard journalism. It takes science and makes it very clear. It, it describes the facts on the ground and what's actually going on. But there is such a humanizing element in it when you brought your own story in it. So it asks the reader to understand what's at stake as a human being here. And so I really loved it for that reason. I thought that was incredible because the journalism is straight journalism and the personal narrative really makes us understand why we would care. So congratulations. Thank you. I, I give credit to my editor, Macy Cochran at Tin House, because she's the one that actually said, can you develop the personal narrative more? Because I initially thought that I would only have the journalism. I thought, you know, who wants to hear about my complicated relationship with my auntie, et cetera. And then in the end, I'm really surprised that's what readers are very much drawn to is that personal experience because we all have complicated relationships with a family member. And then we've all had sickness, old age, right? And death, we've all had experience with that. And everyone I've spoken with so far has just loved the book and it seems to be well-received everywhere. Sharon, do you have anything? I do. I mean, I loved the book. It was harrowing. It was so interesting to read it in this time. Reading your book, what came through so strongly was how divided the world can be. You know, those who are directly affected by something where it's an immense reality, and those who may not even be aware it exists. This parasite kills more than 10,000 people each year, and you refer to the epi-divide. You say people on one side of the epidemiological divide will die of diseases related to old age, while those on the other side will die much younger because medicine for treatable diseases is too expensive or the village doesn't have enough food. That was just like an immense thing for me in reading your book. Sharon, thank you so much for pointing to that passage. And, and I give credit to Dr. Paul Farmer, who's just done incredible work on global health. And he is the one who, when I came across that phrase of the great epidemiological divide in a biography of him, it moved me so much because it really spoke to what I was seeing, which is that absolutely many of us in the United States do not have to worry about a disease like Chagas disease. You know, I thought it was very rare. I was the only family that I knew uh, that had ever dealt with this. And so it was shocking to learn that there's 300,000 people just in the United States and millions more in Latin America who have this deadly disease. One in three people go on to develop cardiac complications because the parasite goes after the heart usually, and then in some cases after the gastrointestinal system. But when I started looking at, yes, who are these families, that was a really big motivator for me was to see if these families had experiences similar to my own, and they did, you know, and many of them, in terms of that epidemiological divide, which I think we have seen this past year with the COVID-19 pandemic so intensely, same is true with Chagas disease, you know, if you don't have insurance, if you don't live in a certain neighborhood, you know, less access to testing, even when you do have a job, it doesn't necessarily have health insurance, or you can't so easily take off days from work to go have these multiple appointments, and then something that I don't feel like we've spoken about even during this pandemic, which is the agency that people feel in a medical setting, you know, feeling like they can advocate for themselves. Sometimes there's a language barrier. A lot of people I spoke to were 
immigrants who only spoke Spanish, so there was a language barrier. But even when they did speak English or when they had a family member who spoke English, still you're not born with this sense of, I can advocate for myself in a medical setting. I know as much as a doctor knows about my own medical condition. So, so many challenges that feed into that epi divide. Yeah, I mean, I think we so rarely, if we're privileged enough, you know, and English is our first language and we're white or we're accustomed to conversation with an authority figure that's a more frank conversation. And even in a negotiation, it's different. I can remember I was quite sick a couple of years ago and in the hospital. And then when I was out of the hospital, I ended up in this conversation, this kind of tortured conversation with a medical supply place, which was just unbelievable to me. And I got off the phone and my friend whose house I was staying in said, just think what it would be like if English was not your first language. And if you didn't have, as you say, I hadn't ever thought of it in quite those terms, but that's exactly right. If you didn't have a sense of agency, if you didn't have a sense of the rightfulness of your being able to ask questions, just think it was bad enough the way it was. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the more moving interviews that I had was with a family. So this parasite is not only transmitted by these insects that are at the center of my book, but they can also be transmitted during pregnancy from woman to child. And I interviewed a family where a baby was born, basically infected and was sick because babies, when they're born with Chagas disease or congenital Chagas disease, don't always necessarily show really clear symptoms. And in this case, the child did. And they wanted to get the mom tested and wanted to get her in connection with the doctor. And her husband did speak English and I thought spoke really good English. But every time he called, you know, of course, he's saying Chagas disease to these medical offices that have never heard of this disease. So he starts to doubt himself. He's like, is it my English? Is it that they've just never heard of this? And he struggled. And in the end, he could not find anyone who felt comfortable even making an appointment for him and ended up getting to a doctor kind of through word of mouth in the community and among the doctors themselves, connecting him with resources. So yeah, I think of that often for myself too. Like this is bad enough when you're struggling with a medical situation and so much harder when there are not like resources there in place. You know, we'll get to more Buddhist stuff in a bit, but I just want to make sure our listeners understand the impact that uh, Chagas has on the body's organs. Yeah, so the parasite primarily will go after the heart muscle, and it'll interrupt the electrical conduction system. It'll eat away at the wall of the heart as well. So you end up having the heart muscle really slow down, not being able to keep up. In the worst cases, people end up needing a pacemaker, more so now a defibrillator. Uh, In the worst cases, they end up needing a heart transplant, which is very complicated because this is not a curable disease. There is not a cure at this time. For Chagas, there isn't treatment once you're in that chronic stage. There is treatment for the immediate, in those first two months after you've had contact with a kissing bug. There is treatment if you've been able to get diagnosed, which doesn't happen very often. But once you're in that chronic stage, we don't have a cure. And so then you don't have a way of getting rid of the parasite. So even if you have a heart transplant, the parasite can still reemerge and attack the new heart. So it becomes a chronic condition that you're managing. And then, of course, trying to avoid that terrible fate. 
In the case of my auntie, which is a fewer number of patients, the parasite goes after the gastrointestinal system. So it goes after the large intestine and the esophagus. It seems to prefer sort of these hollow areas of the body. We don't necessarily think of them as hollow, but that's how it gets described. So it can shut down the esophagus, like really interrupt these kind of involuntary muscle actions. That's what happened in the case of my auntie. In her case, she felt like she couldn't eat because she didn't feel like she could swallow food. And she experienced a lot of pain because her intestine dilated. So she had several surgeries to deal with that. So it was quite a lifelong chronic illness. I'm very curious about when you actually wrote the book. I'm still struck by writing about a pandemic during a pandemic or even more eerily before a pandemic so that you see so much of what you'd written about come alive. Yes, I started working on this book in 2013. So I was working on it for seven years. So I was actually pretty much done when the pandemic hit. And of course, the pandemic was just an incredible shock. But the racial disparities in healthcare were a shock because I had seen it all with Chagas disease. I had seen patients struggle to get tested. And then suddenly I was seeing all of us trying to figure out where to go get tested, right? Uh, same with vaccine, you know, in terms of accessing treatment, seeing patients struggling to figure out how they could get um, access to the drugs that are available for Chagas, at least because it can reduce the parasite load in your body, but historically has been very difficult. The FDA finally approved these two drugs now in the U.S. But yeah, just everything that we know in terms of not being able to take off from work, not being able to quit your job or do your job from home, not being able to leave your job to go get tested for COVID, overwhelmed by so many disparities across the board. That was really shocking. And then it was really shocking because we realized that we needed to address COVID in the book. But I think both my editor, Macy Cochran, and I were worried about how we would transition and worried that it would seem like we had added something on in an awkward way. And the scary part was that, and you know this if you read the book, it was painfully easy to transition and to write about COVID because of those racial disparities in healthcare. So that chapter where I talk about that great epidemiological divide just seamlessly allowed me to add a whole section about COVID-19. But yeah, it was quite shocking. Yeah, there's something spooky about that that I discovered too, you know, when I wrote Real Change, which was also before the pandemic. You know, I have a chapter on grief and I have a chapter on anger and courage. And then looking back at it, I thought, whoa, you know, like. Exactly, exactly. We don't even know (laughs) what we're working on while we're working on it. Daisy, you talk about AIDS and you call yourself a child of the first age generation. And I wonder about that because more than COVID, that experience seems to have shaped this. It just dovetailed with COVID by the time you'd written it, as Sharon says. But how do you relate this to being a quote unquote child of the first age generation? So my auntie came to the U.S. in 1980, and I was that generation, I believe that first generation, that was learning about HIV and AIDS in the classroom. I think I was really lucky, actually. I didn't realize this until years later. I was in a Catholic elementary school learning about HIV and AIDS in our science class. I don't think that was a typical experience for children in the 80s. So I look back now and think, wow, I was what an incredible experience to have to be able to learn about the virus and the epidemic in an educational context. But what we were also learning during that time was just the incredible way that people were stigmatized that had HIV. And my auntie and I never spoke about it, but I 
have to believe that that also affected how she felt about the disease because she was an immigrant, so she was an outsider in the U.S. And here she was, you know, we were all watching how not just, you know, not just outsiders, but how Americans were treating each other uh, and those who were infected with HIV. So that was just such a huge part of my childhood. And I think for me, especially, I was that generation that was watching children with HIV being stigmatized and not wanted and not wanted back in schools. And so was my auntie also watching that. So I think that also very much affected the fact that she never wanted any of her coworkers to know the name of her disease or what she had. We were never supposed to speak about it with anyone outside the family. I very much was raised with a sense of this is taboo, this could be dangerous. To the point that she lived with this disease for several decades before she ultimately died from it. And at her funeral, her coworkers were asking me, was it cancer? What is it that she had? Because they had no idea. And it was such a surreal experience. So I don't know if people now forget about the level of stigma or, you know, with HIV and AIDS. I feel like a younger generation has a really different experience of it. But for me, my experience was people being conflated with the disease itself and being stigmatized, the Haitian American community facing such incredible discrimination in terms of housing and jobs when they were designated by the CDC as being a high-risk group, uh, which was later removed, obviously. But yeah, just so much stigma and so much shame. The descriptions of the shame are so powerful in your book. And I think about you know how often that does accompany a diagnosis and how common that is. I just got this picture of a family where just the mix of shame and grief and guilt and everything and how hard that is to navigate. And even feeling like that is so tough. I wondered if that is also the basis of greater compassion, like just seeing, wow, this is so painful. And look at how every person is suffering in their own individual kind of way. Absolutely. And I felt that particularly when I found other Latinx families who had this diagnosis. And for so many of them, they were actually in a similar situation as my family, where they were the only ones that they knew in the U.S. Sometimes they knew people, it was back home that they knew people who had been diagnosed. But yeah, I think it's a source of compassion. And also thinking of your book as well, also a source for change, because the woman who I interviewed in Texas, whose doctor told her basically to keep quiet about having this disease because he thought she's going to be stigmatized by her neighbors. But she was actually thinking, hey, these insects are everywhere in Texas and my neighbors should know so that if they're having symptoms, maybe they need to get tested if they've had contact with these insects. Her go-to was like, I need to get the word out. I need to take action. And then it was incredible to me that a doctor would say to stay silent it was so shocking. And the good news there is that it took her a couple of months, took her almost a year, but she realized, no, I actually need to say something. I need to start talking with people about this. And then she went on to just become a really great advocate. She testified in front of the Food and Drug Administration to help get these drugs approved in the U.S. She's spoken to so many media outlets. She's just been really vocal. It's just amazing. You know, this reminds me so much of the AIDS epidemic. So many of the issues are the same. The shame in particular and people's decisions. I believe it was Candace's decision to say, hey, I have HIV and this is a big deal. And who advocated, they were very brave because so many people were unwilling to say it. 
because the shame and the stigma had also to do with the behavior associated with it. In the case of Haitians, it was really just more similar to the other appearing with the disease. And in many ways, in fact, those marginalized groups, the reason that our government was so slow to acknowledge it. And with Chagas, it's so similar because, you know, 70,000 people in the U.S. seem to have it, and they're largely from Latin America, and likewise a population that was not responded to. And what was also interesting to me was that as I went out into the community to interview people, I did find so many different experiences. So there was that patient in Texas whose doctor had, you know, told her to stay silent. There were experiences like that of my auntie. And then there were immigrant families that came from places in South America, particularly where this disease is well known. It's not always necessarily well understood by people, but it's understood more to be like Lyme disease. And so there isn't quite the same level of stigma. So that was a really complicated experience too, as I was talking to people, finding which people had shame or discomfort around it. And, you know, it tended to be because someone had told you to have shame in some way, right? Like it had been communicated to you somehow. Or like in my auntie's case, she was coming from Colombia, which does not have high, high rates of this disease compared to other countries. And so it was less known even there. And also when she came in 1980, the disease overall was still not as well known even in South America as it is today. So there's generational differences too. I think that the younger generations that I interviewed from certain parts of South America were more like, oh, this is like Lyme disease. But then even with that, when we would talk more, they would tell me that it's not that the insects were in their house, they were at their neighbor's house. <laughs> so yeah. when you were saying that about the association of disease and behavior, right? The idea that, oh, you have an unclean house and that's why you're sick now, right? Was right. so strong. Even in these places where there's really high rates of this disease, relatively speaking, there was still that like, well, you know, everyone has this, but it wasn't me. It was like, you just can't control what your neighbor does with their insects and how they clean their house and so forth. So I think it's still there, you know, underneath. Well, there's something to be said for the Buddha emphasizing sickness, old age, and death, you know, which right. people think is so depressing sometimes. But of course, it's not depressing. It's liberating, you know, because here we all are. This is kind of in the nature of things. And we do everything we can, you know, not to be sick and so on. But Nonetheless, in the end, this is just a part of life. Right. It becomes very depersonalized when you realize that's the inevitable condition. So with that, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. As Buddhism has grown in the West, the Dharma has been shaped by a dynamic and ongoing process of secularization. How have the Buddhist teachings been reimagined for the modern world? Is Buddhism today a religion, a philosophy, or a lifestyle choice? Join Tricycle and Jambala Publications for a live speaker series to celebrate the launch of the new anthology, Secularizing Buddhism, New Perspectives on a Dynamic Tradition. In this week-long conversation series, Buddhist scholars and practitioners explore the complex interactions between traditional Buddhism and modern secularism from the integration of mindfulness into American schools to the question of rebirth. This is a donation-based event. Sign up for free today at tricycle.org slash secularizing dash Buddhism. That's tricycle.org slash secularizing dash Buddhism. 
Now, let's return to James Shaheen and Sharon Salzberg in conversation with Daisy Hernandez. You know, this may be a bit of a stretch, I'm not sure, but I think I heard a little bit of the Buddhist in you, Daisy, when you were talking about these bugs. You had a complete aversion to bugs when you were a kid, and you came around at a certain point in the book where you were looking at it and you said, wow, this is beautiful, which was like this transformation really from this inability to even look at them to looking at them very closely and seeing their beauty. And I'm still struggling with ticks. One very interesting perspective was that of a scientist who didn't want to show any disrespect to the parasite. He said, no, in fact, this is fascinating. They're very intelligent. How did your relationship to these conditions, these bugs, this parasite change? Is there a little bit of compassion there too? Oh, what a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Compassion. Hmm. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if I can go all the way to compassion for the insect and the parasite, but it is true that I had such an aversion, not only for these insects, but just anything that creeps and crawls through the world. And, you know, I've always had a little fantasy that one day I would be the kind of Buddhist that like could sit on her cushion and a little insect walked by and I'd be like, so at peace with that. I have yet to become that person, even with writing this book. (laughs) When I started this book, I was so aware, you know, thanks to my practice, I was really aware that, yes, I'm in deep aversion and I don't care. I'm not looking at these. (laughs) So even I couldn't even bring myself to look at photographs of these insects. Mm -hmm. It was really, really difficult. And it was really, you know, the need to go out in the field and talk to researchers and see their work in order to be able to write about it that got me out there and that little by little did start to change my perspective because it was just fascinating to talk with these scientists, right? And to see like, they look at the world from the parasites' perspectives, right? They're not dealing with patients in and out, they're dealing with parasite in and out. Right. And so they think this parasite is ancient, this parasite was in the Americas before Christopher Columbus arrived, this parasite has figured out how to survive, it infects not just humans, but you know any mammal. So I thought, cunning, and yeah, the scientists thought, intelligent and fascinating and intriguing, you know, which were, Yes, not the words that I would use. (laughs) I was recently in central Massachusetts and I had your book in mind because I had begun it. And all I could think of were the ticks and what aversion I felt for those ticks. They said, maybe I could do loving kindness practice with the ticks, but it was a bit of a stretch for me. I I didn't succeed. I have to admit, I have not done loving kindness (laughs) for the bugs. I know, it's a little crazy. I, I get the creepy crawlies, even reading the book sometimes. And when you said it was beautiful, though, my perspective shifted. Yeah, it was an incredible moment for me where I realized, oh, gosh, I can actually look at these photos, not only look at them, but actually stare at them for long periods of time. And my body's not reacting in the same way. And yeah, I guess it was the slow exposure over and over again to the the object of fear. But I also really feel like it was my practice, right? Because there were moments, you know, I described being in South Texas with these researchers when one of them just hands me a bug in a plastic bag, but I, <laughs> sure, I had no interest in, <laughs> <laughs> I had no interest in holding a bag of an insect like this or any insect. But in that moment, it was a little bit of, okay, let me stay with my breath. <laughs> I, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really interesting how what we do on the cushion kicks in. <laughs> 
when you least expect it to. No, it's true. When James and I were talking about topics we wanted to try to cover with you, I reminded him that the last time we all spoke, it was about equanimity because I quoted you in my book uh, because I had come upon writings you had done in equanimity. And in fact, what I said to James was, well, she's the equanimity lady. Let's try to talk about that. So here we are. with the equanimity lady. (laughs) We've kind of been skirting around equanimity, I think, in this last part of the conversation. But maybe, Daisy, you want to say more about that quality in this context? I have to say my sweetie who lives with me day in and day out would find it very humorous <laughs> that I would be described as the equanimity lady. The equanimity lady. <laughs> That's not the words that my sweetie would use, I think. But uh, yes, equanimity, you know, that feeling of staying grounded no matter what is happening, I think was something that actually I turned to over and over again, you know, from the beginning till the end of the book, because you know, I didn't write this in the book necessarily, but the night that my auntie died, it was a shock to us. I write about that in the book. So there was a part of me that was going through shock at the moment of her death. And then there was this other part of me that was completely with her and was able to talk to her in a very calm voice. I didn't even recognize myself actually, and was able to say, you know, it's okay if you're afraid right now, you know, it's okay. I'm with you. And it's okay to go into that fear. It's not going to hurt you. And it's okay. Was able to just give this reassurance that I feel came from equanimity and also compassion for what she was going through. And then at the other end of the experience with this book, I had very long interviews with patients, uh, interviews that stretched over years, actually, where I was asking them to recount very painful memories to me. And that included not just actually patients, but also I had a doctor who broke down and cried with me about a patient that died from this disease. And yeah, having equanimity in that moment to be able to be with the person and not be overwhelmed by the grief and despair that they were experiencing. This is not what you're trained in journalism school to do. Equanimity is not one of the courses that you get in journalism school. But I was thinking actually... It should be, right? We should be instructed in journalism school on equanimity, on compassion, on mindfulness journalism (laughs) in mind and journalism, because it can be so hard to be there, to be compassionate, to respect that you're in a professional role, but to still have that compassion. And then afterwards, you know, I would have to go home and these were all taped interviews. So I was listening to them again to confirm what I had heard, the quotes that I wanted to use in the piece. And so talk about needing to keep your grounding as you do that. You know, that was definitely essential. Yeah, I can't imagine working on this book without the Dharma and all the teachings. I know other people do it, but I'm glad that I had that support in place. Yeah, along those lines, I wonder what role faith and religion play in your writing, especially during the writing of this book. That's a fantastic question. So I come from a pretty religious family. My mother's side of the family is Catholic. My father practices an Afro-Cuban religion called Regla de Ocha. So grew up in a family that very much went to church on Sundays. I went to Catholic school for all 12 years. And my auntie really leaned into her faith, into her Catholic faith, to cope with this chronic illness that doesn't have a cure. So over the years, I definitely witnessed how important faith was for her, for my mother, for my other aunties, really in giving them sustenance when medicine could not give answers. Um, 
And that was a big lesson for me. But for myself, as a Buddhist, I feel like I used my own spiritual tradition now in working on this book, specifically when I was interviewing patients and their families. This is not something that they teach you in journalism school. They don't teach you how to be with someone who's recounting a very, very painful experience with medicine, or I was also interviewing all immigrants. So sometimes they were telling me about their journeys of migration as well, some of which were really traumatic. Uh, And so for me as a Buddhist, it made such a difference to be able to be with them, which I can't imagine being with them without my own practice of sitting, of hearing the teachings over the years. Yet I really drew a lot on compassion as well. That was really critical. And it allowed me to make room for silence during our interviews as well. As a journalist, you're trained, get to the next question, get to the next question. But I think when you're bringing together journalism and Buddhism, there's more space there for silence. And also I found myself making space to really acknowledge what the person was sharing with me. And there were several times when I did the Tonglen practice of on the inhale, bringing in what was difficult and being shared with me. And on that exhale, sending compassion to the person, including I spent a day at the hospital with one patient in particular, and that was an incredibly useful practice to have. So what was your religious upbringing like? And how did you find Buddhism? Or or maybe I should ask, how did Buddhism find you? So as a child, I was a super happy Catholic. I feel like I sometimes have to apologize for that because I know Catholicism has not been a joyous journey for many people, especially for many people in the LGBTQ community. But for me, I was such a happy Catholic. I loved everything about it, loved going to church, loved the songs, loved my children's Bible. And it didn't answer some very fundamental questions. So I found, or I love how you're phrasing it, Buddhism definitely found me when I was in college, but I was working at my local public library in a small town in New Jersey. And when I say small, I mean this library was essentially one room. And I came across a teaching that had been transcribed of Pema Chodron's. And what really struck me and completely changed the course of my life is that She talked about being at war with ourselves, that we are so often at war with who we are, with what we're struggling with, that we're we're trying to change ourselves and make ourselves into better people. And what if we didn't have to be at war with ourselves? And that felt to me like just an incredibly novel idea. It really gave me permission to stop fighting with myself because I realized that, and I'm not gonna say that this is a reflection of Catholicism, but I really was trying to make myself always into a good person and feeling like I had to change myself in such a deep way. I was such an angry, angry teenager. And I had a lot of reasons to be angry. I just wanna confirm, (laughs) affirm my teenage self, but I didn't wanna live that way. And yet I felt like my only solution was to like, get rid of the anger that was burning inside me. And that first Buddhist teaching was about being friends with myself. And can I be friendly with the anger? Can I notice it and be with it? And I never looked back (laughs) after that. You know, in the end, you become an aunt yourself. And despite the differences, despite the fact that often your aunt did not approve of you or your behavior or your love life, whatever it was, in the end, you sort of become more like her. Is that fair to say? 
I think in the end, I was able to see ways that I am like her. I was able to see it for the first time. You know, talk about right view <laughs> at the end there. Yeah, because, you know, I identify as bisexual, as queer, and she never accepted me as being a queer niece or queer daughter. And so I, I just saw myself in such opposition to her for that reason and so many others. And then at the end, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm like this obsessive auntie and I'm also a teacher now. And just like my auntie, I have all opinions. My niece is 18 months old and I have lots of opinions <laughs> about her life. And so, yeah, talk about, you know, we become our mothers. <laughs> After this last conversation, I'm thinking about my relationship with my goddaughter. And I thought, oh, yes, I do have opinions. Like, why do you want to move to California? It's so hot there. There are fires. Don't do that. But what to do? You know, my nephew is so much like me. My brother calls me and says, I can't believe I have to go through this all over again. <laughs> he said he's a straight version of you. So it's very funny. That is very funny. In the book, you say that you wrote from an early age. When did you first realize you wanted to become a writer? Oh, I knew in middle school, I think it was probably around sixth grade. Yeah, I knew really early on. I, I tell this story often, but I think it was around sixth grade that our science teacher asked us to write an essay about why there might be alien life on other planets like Neptune. And it was really easy for me to write that essay because I felt like an alien in my hometown. I lived in a predominantly white community and we were the second Latinx family that moved onto that block. So I felt like, well, if I'm an alien, why can't there be aliens on Neptune? And then my uncle had a card in his wallet that identified him as a resident alien and it had been issued by the government of the United States. So if my uncle is an alien, why can't there be aliens on Neptune? So I didn't put all of that into the essay, but I think that was informing my perspective to argue for alien life. And my teacher really enjoyed the essay and not only enjoyed it, but she read it to the entire class. And I remember looking around watching all these kids nodding and agreeing with me that there was alien life on Neptune. And I just remember this feeling and this thought, you know, if I can convince these fools that there's life on Neptune, I can do anything. This is amazing. This is power. So for me, it was like realizing, oh my God, writers have power. Like I actually did believe like, yeah, why not? Why can't there be aliens on another planet? You know, it wasn't that I was lying or anything, but seeing that my words could have impact and touch people, was so powerful for me because I was growing up in a situation where both at home and in my community, I didn't have a lot of power. And so as a writer, it was the first time that I was like, wow, I can make a difference. I can do something that touches people. So your epigraph includes a beautiful quote from Sherry Moraga. And the quote is, there is a prayer in the act of writing. And I wonder how writing this book has been an act of prayer. Yes, it has been a prayer, I think, in different ways. I did not realize that I was grieving my auntie because we did have such a complicated relationship because I felt rejected for so long that I felt like, how can I grieve this loss? So I didn't feel almost entitled to the grief. And as I wrote about our relationship and our life and the disease, I realized that you know, it was a prayer for our relationship. I would say maybe a meta for our relationship, the book itself. And then I felt like it had to be a prayer in the sense that 
so many of these families in the U.S. and also in South America were sharing their stories with me in the hopes that the book would raise awareness about the disease and would help other families, would help to make doctors and nurses and people in the medical profession aware of the disease. So there was a point in some of my interviews where I began to realize, oh, this is like a prayer that we are creating together in some way. They're sharing their stories. I'm writing it. We're hoping that this is going to have an impact and is going to, in some ways, you know, I don't know if necessarily save lives, but help people at least. And so a prayer in that way too, I think. You also quote Adrian Rich, any woman's death diminishes me. You want to say something about that? Yeah. You know, one of the things that happens in terms of writing about global health, about public health issues is that you're dealing with numbers a lot. And I think you saw this with the pandemic. I remember listening to NPR and a reporter just blankly said, you know, she's struggling with how to communicate this to people, that these are people that we are losing. Because if you were not losing someone in your own family, in your community, you're just hearing numbers all the time. And something similar began to happen with Chagas because six million people are infected with this disease right now. Thousands die every year. There sort of came a point where, you know, it was very personal to me, but I realized that it wasn't personal to everyone else. And I I think where I felt that and worried mostly was with children, because in the U.S., we have anywhere between 60 and more than 300 children that are born with this disease every year, but we don't do prenatal screening for it. So we're missing these kids and the disease can be dormant in the body for decades. So we're expecting that decades from now, these children as adults, one in three of will be showing symptoms of mostly cardiac complications. And so for me, I kept trying to hold on to that, like, This isn't a number. This is actually children, many, many children every year. And so even one of them, one child infected diminishes me, right? It's like when I saw that Adrian Rich quote, I was like, yes, like I need to hold on to that as a way to stay connected with the humanity that I'm writing about and trying to describe. Sharon? Well, I'm just getting a vision of a society that is is actually based on inclusion rather than exclusion. And just that possibility, and sometimes, of course, it seems incredibly remote, but, you know, I feel like I and and we need to keep that vision alive and just know that every time we sequester a group of people, especially around kind of suffering, as though it was going to bring us down, you know, to those of us who are not directly affected, you know, it's going to somehow soil our happiness. And instead of realizing that is so much the basis of genuine happiness is recognizing ourselves in one another and not leaving anybody out. I just have to believe it's possible, you know, that as individuals, we can do that and we can guide a society more toward that possibility. Absolutely. And one of the most jolting moments for me working on this book was realizing that for those of us who are on the easier side of that epidemiological divide and feeling like I've got health insurance, you know, I speak English, I've got resources, I don't have to worry about this so much. And it was a jolt for me to realize, oh, actually there's an epi elite, right? An epidemiological elite 
people who have many thousands of dollars that can have a doctor on call, these boutique doctors. And so it was a jolt to read about that in the New York Times and other media outlets and to realize even when you think you're on the good side, right, there's another (laughs) good side, right? And this is sort of like the insidiousness of what you're talking about, right? The excluding, right? Deciding who it's okay to suffer and who it's not, you know? You have to watch out because you don't know when you're slipping over to the other side, actually, to the side that you don't want to be on. So, yeah. Yeah, those borders are porous for sure. You know, you make that clear when you say, if something doesn't affect you, why would you know about it? And you come to this very human initial response of, hey, I'm okay. And taking the extra step of saying, is everyone else okay? You refer to Chagas as a disease of the heart because quite literally it attacks the heart but it also shows us the ills that afflict us as both individuals in a society, which is also a disease of the heart. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's not just a literal disease in that sense of the body, but a spiritual and emotional and one of perspective of oftentimes looking at healthcare and looking at public health from, as I wrote in the book, a policy of containment that we need to contain this to certain communities as opposed to like, no, we need to eradicate this. And, you know, Chagas disease is actually only one of more than a dozen diseases that the World Health Organization has identified as being neglected because they disproportionately affect poor people in poor countries around the world. So there is a lot to do. You know, there's a lot that we can do if we make that choice, right? It comes down to the choices that we make. Well, that's an inspiring note to close on. Daisy, thanks so much for joining us. And to our listeners, make sure to pick up a copy of The Kissing Bug, a true story of a family, an insect, and a nation's neglect of a deadly disease. Okay, so now we have a nice way of closing. Sharon, can you take us out with a meditation? Sure. I'm really uh, struck also, Daisy, by how often you use the term grounded, which was lovely and a good reminder. So why don't we sit together in that spirit for a few minutes and first just feel the earth supporting you. And feel space touching you. You know, sometimes we hear a phrase like that and we think about picking up a finger and poking it in the air, but really space is already touching us. It's enfolding us. We just need to receive it. And feel your breath, wherever it's strongest for you or clearest for you. This is life itself. One breath. As you get lost or overwhelmed or confused, it's okay. Look what we can do. We can actually let go and come back. Take a breath. Come back to this moment.
And wherever we may get lost, however long that may last, we always have this capacity to just like ground, come back, remember what we care about, what our values are, how much we don't know, and it's okay that we don't know it. And we can't know it, we can't control it. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze, however you've been sitting, and we'll end the meditation. So thank you, Daisy, and thank you, Sharon. It's great to see you both. And what a wonderful book. Congratulations to you, Daisy. Thank you, James. Thank you, Sharon, for that beautiful meditation. Thank you. It's so great to see you again. Same here. You've been listening to Daisy Hernandez and Sharon Salzberg on Life As It Is. We'd love to hear your thoughts about Life As It Is, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org and let us know what you think. Life As It Is is produced by Paul Ruest, Julia Hirsch, and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.